take your Bibles now, if you would, please, and open them to Matthew chapter 6. And today, once again, we're returning to our study on prayer, and we're using as a guideline this model prayer that Jesus gave the disciples when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount was the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. And in a sermon that could be classified in that way, you would surely think that there are many, many very important topics that would be discussed. And that's definitely what we do find in Matthew chapter 6, as Jesus seeks to correct the many hypocritical practices of the scribes and Pharisees. And uh, of all their practices, probably the most troublesome was the way in which they prayed. Uh, Prayer is the highest spiritual activity of man. It, along with our study of God's Word, is the way that we determine or is a gauge of true spirituality. If you don't take time to study God's Word and you don't uh, speak to God in prayer, then there is no way that you could actually call yourself a spiritual person. Prayer is so important that among the different areas of worship, Jesus spent more time with this, even going so far as to give his disciples a model prayer in which he could present to them every essential element that a prayer should contain. Now, Jesus, in just a few words, showed the disciples how they were to pray properly. Now, over the course of a few weeks, we're looking into this prayer of Jesus and these uh, short sayings that he made in the Lord's Prayer. And everything that Jesus said is so significant. I mean, there are just 66 words that we have to deal with, and yet each, one of, each phrase that, that's in this prayer is so significant that we must take time to break it down and to see what Jesus meant. Now, this morning we're going to read the prayer again. I know that it's familiar to most of you. You know it by heart. But I want you to keep on repeating it until you really let it sink down inside of you that these things that Jesus said are to be a part of the prayers that we pray to God. Now, if you'd stand with me, please, and if you would look at uh, Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse number 9. This is where the Lord's Prayer begins. Jesus instructs, and he says, After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we... Thank you, Lord, for all of the many blessings that you have given us. We thank you especially that we're able to be here today and to open up your word and to learn what you would have us to know from Scripture today. I ask you, Lord, that you would bless in the message. Help us to very clearly understand what you meant as we break down these different phrases and and just show how we are to use what Jesus said in this prayer as a model for our own prayers. Bless in the message today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Our purpose in studying the Lord's Prayer is that we do break down every one of these statements and discover their significance. I've chosen to break the Lord's Prayer down into eight statements that we put under the headings of relationship, reverence, rule, rapport, resources, repentance, righteousness, and respect. Relationship is found in the first statement when Jesus says, Our Father, which art in heaven. Reverence is the thrust of hallowed be thy name. 
rule is found in the statement, Thy kingdom come. And now we come to this fourth statement today, which is, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Now that is the rapport of prayer. Rapport means agreement. It means uh, the trust that exists between two parties. And when we go to the Lord in prayer, we trust that the accomplishment of His will is always best. No matter what the outcome of prayer may be, no matter how God decides to answer, God's will is always best, and we always agree with Him. And there is a wonderful progression in the prayer. Uh, Each statement builds upon the preceding, and we see that especially as we come to the fourth statement, because it follows, Thy kingdom come. And God's will is most certainly done when God's kingdom comes upon the earth. Now, Jesus is going to come and rule and reign in a literal kingdom in this world. And when he comes, the Bible says that he will rule in perfect righteousness. So, for the present time, now there is that kingdom that's coming, but for the present time, the Bible says that we must pray that God's will will be done. Now, it's evident that in the way that Christ prayed, that for God's will to be done in earth as it is in heaven, that there must be a difference between the two. God's will is not always done on the earth as it's done in heaven. Now, today we're going to discuss that, and uh, it's a difficult problem for us. Um, So we're going to talk about how that God's will is to be done. Now, this is one of those messages where you really can't tune me out for about five or ten minutes and then come back and say, oh, well, I understand exactly what you're talking about. You need to pay attention all the way through because uh, it it all fits so closely together that to understand what's meant by this statement, uh, you can't tune out. You have to stay with me all the way. Now, when we start talking about God's will, the first thing that it does for us is to present to us a very perplexing problem. God's will for us really is a perplexing problem. I mean, how do we figure out, I mean, uh, how do we reason this out that the great God of the universe, the one who has power and authority over all, should have a problem with his will? Why does Jesus instruct his disciples that you need to pray for God's will to be done? If God is the one who controls everything that happens, then why wouldn't God exercise that control? Why wouldn't he make sure that everything is done in his will? Nothing can be done outside of his will. Now, you see, that is a very perplexing problem, and there is no human that can really fully explain this and explore it fully. We can't really reconcile all of that completely in our minds. The Apostle Paul, I think, dealt with the difficulty of this as he was uh, teaching in the book of Romans. He was discussing God's divine plans and his purposes, and he was in Romans 9, chapters, uh, Romans chapters 9 through 11, and finally he comes down to chapter 11, verse number 33, and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. We're just not able to dig into all of this and reconcile it fully because humans do not have the capacity to understand all of this. But we do have some understanding. God has allowed us to have some understanding. So that's why we read God's Word. That's why we do study it, because there are some things that God allows us to know. And so we're going to explore it a little bit. It's a perplexing problem but we're going to try to reach some understanding of God's will. So how do we start to reconcile God's will? 
I believe what we need to do is to break it down, as some have done before, into three different types of will that are found in God. The first type of will that's found in God is God's sovereign will. That's God's will where all things are controlled by God and everything works according to God's plans and purposes. Now, when we talk about God's sovereign will, it immediately raises a problem in our minds about sin. I mean, why does God allow sin? There has been allowed into the universe a second will. And by definition, a second will has to be opposed to God's will. You can't have more than one will. You can't go in two different directions unless those wills are opposed to one another. Now, the second will came into existence when Lucifer, who was one of God's angels, rebelled against God. In Isaiah chapter 14, we have the story of the introduction of sin into the universe and the introduction of this second will that came in. Isaiah 14 describes it this way. It says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. There are five times in two verses when Lucifer said, I will. And in each of those statements, there was a conflict with God's will. There is the introduction of sin into the universe. And the Almighty God, the one who is the creator of all, allowed the fall of Satan, and he allowed the introduction of sin into the universe. And so we can say in one sense of the word that that was not in conflict with God's will. That's not in conflict with the sovereign will of God. And that's because God could have stopped it. God could have stopped the rebellion. He could have uh, crushed it right at the very beginning and ended Satan right there. Or God could have created the angels so that it was impossible for them to sin. But God didn't decide to do that. He allowed the second will. He allowed sin to come into the universe. And so we can't say that that was not according to God's sovereign will. So sin, then, is in the sovereign will of God. Now, we usually explain that by saying that God has allowed sin for his greater glory. But the full extent of that statement is really hidden from us. I mean, we all have to be perplexed by that. I mean, why does God allow sin? And so we say that that's really in the secret will of God. But it is in the sovereign will of God. Now, the sovereign will of God also includes his will of decree. And that is that when God speaks, there is no conflict. There is no resistance. What God says happens. And that's the case with creation. God spoke in creation and he said, let there be light. And there was light. God said uh, or commanded that there would be a separation between the waters that are on the earth and the waters above the earth. And that separation occurred. And God said there would be plant life and there would be animal life. And they were created. God said that man would be created and God formed him out of the dust of the earth. And so when God spoke, God was able to do that. And that is in the sovereign will of God. He speaks and it happens. Now also... In the sovereign plan and purpose of God, God has decided that there are some men who should be saved. And he chose those who would be saved before the foundation of the world. And there's no altering that. Uh, He decreed that it would come to pass, and so in time, God made that so. And that is God's sovereign will. And And in this sense, there's nothing that resists that will of God. 
And then we also say sometimes that what, what, whatever was in the mind of God has always been in the mind of God. So there's really nothing that comes to pass that can be outside of the will of God. God is the sovereign. And so you don't pray for that. You don't have to pray for God's sovereign will to be done because God's will always will be done in that sense. So Jesus could not have been speaking about the sovereign will of God when he instructed disciples to pray, Thy will be done. Then there is a second type of will in God that we call God's preceptive will. Now that's not perceptive, perceptive, but preceptive. And that's God's will as expressed by commandment to his creatures. Now, preceptive, of course, re- refers to precept, and that means commandment. It means instructions uh, like things that we're told to do. Now, that part of God's will is found in the Ten Commandments and all of the laws that grow out of those commandments. It's the form of our conduct. This is when God says to us as his creatures, he says, thou shalt not steal. And when he says, you shouldn't kill. Especially when God says things like, you should not have any other gods before me, or that you can't make idols, and on and on that goes. Those are God's commandments. And the very fact that those commandments were given or had to be given is because that part of God's will is not always done. In fact, in man's sinful state, there is no commandment that we can actually keep. Scripture says that we're totally depraved, and any good thing that it appears that we might do does not come out of a heart with the right motive. Our motives are not pure and holy and just as God is pure and holy and just. If you go back and you look at chapter 5 in Matthew, and you read the Beatitudes again, and you look at that teaching that Jesus gave about perfection... The theology behind that is that we are such sinful creatures that we never obey God's will. We're always falling short of what God wants us to do. We fall short of God's glory. And so what we must do is we must throw ourselves on the mercy and the grace of God and ask God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That's why that we need Christ's righteousness, why we need him to be our righteousness. And so it is God's preceptive will that Jesus tells us that we must pray for. Pray that God's precepts, pray that his laws, pray that all of God's commandments are kept. Because when commandments are kept, that's when God is glorified. Now, each commandment that's kept is a commandment that's not broken. And that means that there is no sin. A commandment that's not broken means there is no sin. And so, in effect, we can say that Jesus is actually praying, pray that there would be no sin. God's will is done when there is no sin. Now, that's very instructive as we begin to look at this prayer and see how it fits so marvelously together. A few weeks ago, we were talking about relationship in prayer. And you can't get to this part of the prayer unless you go to the part or get the part about relationship. Because without being born again and without becoming a child of God, we're actually hopeless to keep any of God's commandments. And so without that relationship, the prayer is dead before it ever starts. You can't pray not being a Christian because you are out of the will of God. So how could you pray for God's will to be done? You see, you have to have the relationship. Likewise, it ties together because reverence, God's will, is done when his name is revered. If you use God's name wrongly, if you blaspheme God's name, if you speak God's name in the wrong way, then you don't revere God's name, and so his will is not done. And then as we talk about the rule of prayer, 
wherever Christ does not rule completely in righteousness, then of course the will of precept is not done. And so that is what Jesus is instructing for us to pray for. Many people think that the Ten Commandments are dead. You become a Christian and you don't worry about commandments anymore. You don't live by the law anymore. But grace does not mean that you don't keep God's law. God has given us grace to enable us to keep God's law. You see, the commandments are always holy and just and good. God's never going to do away with those. And so Christ says you need to pray for those commandments. Pray that they'll be kept because God's will, his preceptive will, is done when commandments are kept. And that's what glorifies God. And we tie all this back into worship. We worship God correctly when we keep the commandments. We receive answers to our prayer when we keep God's commandments. It's exactly what John was speaking of in 1 John chapter 3. He said, And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things which are pleasing in his sight. And isn't that what we've been pointing out about Christ's teachings? Because the Pharisees had perverted the commandments of God, their theology was wrong, they were teaching wrongly, and wrong theology never produces right worship. And so they didn't receive answers to their prayer. God didn't listen to them. And so Jesus says, pray that commandments will be kept. The preceptive will of God will be done. And then proper worship will always follow. Now that brings us to a third will in God. And the third type of God's will is God's will of disposition. Now we could call this God's will of desire because this is what pleases God. Now of course the Receptive will of God also pleases God. But here we're talking about God's will concerning desire. And this is not necessarily something that God commands to be done. And he doesn't mean, or it doesn't mean, that God's going to work everything out so that this is done. God is not pleased with sin. I mean, we know that. And uh, he's not pleased that anybody would be engaged in sin. But God has not decided at this time to overrule sin so that sin can't be committed. Now, we have a verse in 2 Peter uh, 3, verse number 9, that that is kind of perplexing to some people, where it says that God is not willing that any should perish. 2 Peter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, we can go round and round that scripture and and talk about the context of it. I, I, I really do think that it's speaking about the elect of God, that God is not willing that any of them should perish. But if you want to take the other view of this, it's all right. And if you want to say, well, what this is talking about is man in general, that God in general is not particularly happy that any of his creatures should perish. And I think that would be a true statement. It's not his will that they should be, perish because it's obvious for them to perish, they would have to commit sin. And God never condones the commission of sin. But we still know that men perish. That's why we have a Savior. That's why we come here to church church and you get a message and we talk about salvation. Men are perishing because of their sin. But we can't be talking about the sovereign will of God to keep people from perishing. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 is not speaking of the sovereign will of God because if that was God's will of decree that people would not perish, I promise you there would be nobody that would perish. God's sovereign will is always done. We also know that this is not speaking of the perceptive will of God. 
Because the only way that God could command for people not to perish is for God to keep them from perishing himself. And so we must here be talking about God's will of disposition. He doesn't desire that anyone would perish, but God does permit it. Now let's go a little bit further, and let's see what Jesus is praying for when he says, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Next we talk about the angelic action. Jesus is praying that God's, for God's will in the earth, which is apparently different from the way that things are in heaven. So he's praying that whatever it is that happens in heaven concerning God's will, that the same thing would happen on this earth. Now, something happened to the angels when Lucifer fell. I believe that the scriptures teach that as many as one-third of all of the angels joined Lucifer in his rebellion. I don't know how many that is. Uh, It must be an incredible amount. There's enough of those evil angels that some of them have already been uh, committed to hell, and yet there are so many of them left over that Satan's influence in the world seems to be ubiquitous. Satan has all kinds of help. He has untold numbers of evil angels that help him. So no one in the earth actually is able to escape the evil influences of Satan because the measure of its help is incalculable. But since Satan's fall, there are no other angels that sin. Two-thirds of the angels did not sin. They didn't rebel against God. And so what God did was to confirm them in their state of holiness. So there is no angel today, no angel that was left over from that original rebellion that did not sin. Not one of them could ever sin. And so when God or Jesus speaks of God's will being done in heaven, here you have all of these angels, and in heaven all of God's commands are kept all of the time. All of the people that have died and gone to heaven, they've also been confirmed in holiness so that there is no sin in heaven. Now when Jesus prays for God's will to be done in the earth as in heaven, we see again, he must be talking about the preceptive will. He must be talking about commandments. And when God's commandments are kept, again, God is glorified. Now, there's something about the way that those commands are kept in heaven that I think are a good model for the way that God's commands should be kept upon the earth. The angels have a certain way that they go about keeping God's commands. Let me give you three of those ways that should be emulated by those that are on the earth. First of all, they do God's will unreservedly. They are willing. They have no excuses. They don't have any any better plans than God. Now, since Satan fell, the door was opened for not only a second will, but flowing out of that usurpation of God's will has come millions and even billions of wills. Every person that lives on this earth has his own will. And you know what's at the center of man's will? Self. Every will that's out there, man is at the very center of that will. And our selfishness and our egotism, that causes us to live in our own little world. And what we desire is that our will would be done. Now, the problem is that our will never produces happiness. Our will never brings peace to us. It never brings us harmony. And despite that we would love for our, our will to, be, to have an outcome, that it would be joy and peacefulness and all of that, it never intends or never produces what we intend for it to produce. It always falls short. And every heartache that we have, every trouble that we have, that is caused by us opposing God's perfect will. 
Now we're talking again about God's preceptive will. That's the type of will Jesus says that we are to pray for. That's God's commandments. And we know that God's commandments are undergirded by two all-important principles. What are the greatest commandments, the Bible says? Love God and love your fellow man. And we run into trouble with man just as quickly as we run into trouble with God. And the reason is the standard that God has set for us is that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And every one of us here in the building today, we know this, that is diametrically opposed to our will. I am just not going to do for you what I'll do for me. I'm not going to treat you every day like I do myself. I'm not going to buy your clothes. I'm not going to pay your house payments. I'm not going to feed you every day. I am not going to take care of you the way that I take care of me. My will does not permit that. And so I reserve the best for me. Now, sometimes I might give you a little bit of deference and uh, I might uh, give you the upper hand every now and then. But in the end, it's all about me, baby. That's my will. My will is going to be done. So if you want to talk about you, I don't want to talk about you. I'm done talking about you. If you want to talk about you, I say, no, let's talk about me for just a little while. That's my will. So I'm going to hold out. I'm going to hold back. But in heaven, the angels never do that. An angel's will never conflicts with God's will because an angel's purpose is always God's purpose. And so when Jesus says, pray that God's will be done in the earth as it is in heaven, he means that you can't have a better plan than God. God's plan is for his glory. And so if you have a different plan, then it can't be a plan that glorifies God. And so these billions of wills that are out there, that are found in billions of people, have to be consolidated into one will, and that's God's will. And friends, that's what brings peace among us. We all line up with God, and by, if we all line up with God, we, by default, begin to line up with each other. I mentioned in Sunday school class a few moments ago that I was speaking to a young man in my, in my house yesterday, and I was talking to him about the gospel, and, and he was speaking about all the wars that there are in the world. And I said, well, the main problem, here's the thing that we have to get down to and understand. Stop talking about all the peripheral effects. The main thing is we have to get down to the problem of the human heart. The human heart has to be brought into conformity with God's will. And when all of us have our hearts brought into God's will, then all of us will be agreeable to one another. I mean, it's inevitable. Jesus knows this. When God's will is done, when all commandments are kept, that's when all of our ills are cured. And so the angels do God's will unreservedly. Secondly, the angels do God's will comprehensively. That means that they do all of God's commands. Jesus says something interesting to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23. He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith, these ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. Now, the scribes and Pharisees, they, they were very good at all the nitpicky little issues, but what they didn't do was the most important things. And so they left out mercy. They didn't use the right judgment. They didn't have faith in God. Some things they did and some things they left out. And the things that they left out were always the downfall. You see, if you, you have, if you have things figured out, I mean, you have the tithe figured out to the smallest detail, so you know what that's supposed to be, and you're sure that you do that, that's great. But that's not going to make up for the things that you don't do. It doesn't make up for things that are omitted. 
Compliance with God says that you do it all, all of his commandments. That's what the angels do. They do God's will comprehensively. They've been confirmed in God's perfection. They can't do one part of God's will and leave another part out. And that's what Jesus prays for. Find out what those commandments are and don't stop short of doing them all. The ones that you fail to do are the ones that snag the perfect will of God. But that's where we run into trouble, isn't it? I mean, some of God's commands are very distasteful to us. Well, none of them are really pleasing to the flesh. But we finally come to the place that there are some things that God says to do that we can live with. And so we'll do those things. There are other things we don't like so much, and so we let them go. Now, let me show you why that doesn't work. James makes a comment in James chapter 2. He says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and offend in one point, he is guilty of all. How many laws do you have to break to be a lawbreaker? How many people do you have to kill to be a murderer? How many times do you have to steal to be a thief? And for all of us here, how many times do you have to lie to be called a liar? You see, breaking God's commands, you can't, you can't pick and choose those and call yourself and say you're not a lawbreaker. Anytime you break any of God's commands of any kind, you're guilty of being a lawbreaker. And so it is with God's will. The angels do all of his will, else, else they fell or they fall into sin. One sin taints heaven. That smirches the holiness of God. Sin, there is no sin in heaven. And so they have to do God's will comprehensively, keeping all of God's commands. Now, the third way an angel keeps God's will is they do it immediately. There's no hesitation. Jesus starts the prayer by saying, Our Father. I don't know how it was in your household when you grew up, but in mine, when Dad said, Do this, you did it. And you did it then or you wish that you had. God does not command angels and angels say well you know something I'll get to that a little bit later on got some other things that need to be taken care of I'll do this a little bit later you can't honor God without recognizing that now is the time to do God's will you know I've heard countless stories about pastors and missionaries and they'll talk about how they resisted God and they'll say well I refuse to go to the mission field or a preacher who says I would not surrender to God's call to preach And then they go on with their story, and they talk about how God beat the daylights out of them. I mean, they couldn't get any peace. There was no rest. God God kept them in turmoil all the time until they surrendered to his will. Jonah put God off. We know where that got him. I mean, how much better would have been for Jonah just to listen to what God said and gone to Nineveh like God told him to do? And I'm afraid that there may be many of you that are Christians, and you are languishing in the whale's belly. Because you put off God's will. You're doing something else. You've got your own plan. Something you have to take care of first. You're doing your own will instead of doing God's will. And I can promise you, there is no value in pursuing anything other than God's will. I mean, if it's his perfect will, if God does what's right all of the time, how could you possibly do anything better than to do God's will immediately? That's how God's will is done in heaven unreservedly, comprehensively, and immediately. Now, the next question is one I suppose that people ask about the most. Now, maybe you can get all this thing down and you understand what I meant about these three different types of will that are in God. That's not too difficult for you. You understand that? 
And you also understand how the angels model how that God's will should be done on the earth. And you, you know all of that. But the problem that you really have is what is God's will for you? How can I know God's will? Now, it seems so clear for the preacher. It seems clear for the missionaries. It seems clear for these disciples that Jesus is teaching. But how am I going to personalize this? How am I to know God's will? Now, the next thing we're going to look at is the method for man. The method for man. How do we know God's will? And you know there are a lot of people, they do know this part of the Lord's Prayer very, very well. I mean, they they may forget some other parts, but somewhere in their prayer, they will come down to this. Now, Lord, here's what I'm asking for, but your will be done. And they have resigned themselves that God's will will be done, and there's really no use in praying to begin with. God's going to do whatever he's going to do. And it's easy for us to think that way, and so uh, we don't really pray for what we want. We just pray because we're told to. We pray, we pray to get it over with. I mean, that's a command. God says to pray, but we really don't have any expectation about our prayers. God's going to do whatever God's going to do. And so you have some people who say prayer changes things. And then you have some people who say prayer doesn't change anything. And yet both camps pray. Both of them pray just like they always did. They're just looking at it from different perspectives. Does prayer change things? Yes. Does prayer change things? No. Does that help you with your problem a little bit? that solve anything for you? Does prayer change things? Yes. Does prayer change things? No. Prayer does not change God. God can't be changed. You see, you can't set God off in a different direction than the one he was going. So you don't turn God around. Prayer does not change God. But listen to me, folks, prayer changes you. What prayer does is put you in the direction that God wants you to go. Through prayer, God accomplishes his will. Now, it's absolutely true that God ordains everything that comes to pass, but God also ordains the way in which they come to pass. I'll give you an example. When we talk about salvation, God has ordained the salvation of men But God has a means by which that salvation comes about, and that's through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter how many people that God has ordained to be saved, not one of them will be saved without the means. And that's believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it's the same thing with prayer. Prayer is a means for the accomplishment of God's will. And so God may bring about his will in your life through the prayers that you pray and He may bring about the will, his will, in someone else's life by the prayers that you pray. That's why we have a prayer page on Wednesday nights. There there are probably over 100 names that are on our prayer page. And so when we pray, uh, God heals people. God finds jobs for people. God saves people. The choir sang a song a few weeks ago that said, Somebody prayed for me. Somebody pleaded the blood of Jesus for me. And so people get saved by prayer. And so that way, yes, prayer does change things. Now, there are two, two things that I think that are going to help you about knowing God's will for your life. I'm going to give these to you rather quickly. Two ways for you to know God's will in your life. Now, number one is that you must develop the discernment. I believe that 99% of God's will is found in the pages of Scripture. When you read God's word prayerfully, The Holy Spirit will take the word and the things that are so difficult to understand become clear. 
You see, God didn't give us his word to be puzzled by it. If his will is found in this book, then there must be a way that we can find out what that will is. God doesn't give us a, a dozen different ways that we find out his will. If there was some other way, then God would have very clearly told us, here's where you need to go, this is what you need to read, this is what you need to do, and you'll find out my will. But the Bible happens to be all of the revelation that we have of God. And God does not open up his revelation in the word without your devotion to it. You have to be dedicated to God's word before you'll find it. Now here we're talking about, or this part of the scripture is about prayer. And for God's will to be done in the earth, somebody had better start opening up God's word and seeing what God's word says. Now here's what... Uh, Romans says about it, Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable, listen, and perfect will of God. Now, isn't that God's will for you? Give your life to him in every phase of your life, every area. And when you do, God begins to open up his perfect will. He renews your mind. He gives you the instruction. He gives you the discernment to be able to to tell what his will is. And you can't shortcut the process. You stay out of the word and you stay out of God's will. Now, that's why I say there are two main areas for determining your spirituality. Do you spend time in the Word of God? Do you read God's Word, and do you pray about it? You can't shortcut that. If you look around you, and you look at people that you think are truly spiritual people, how many of them do you find wandering around and saying, I can't find God's will? I don't know what God wants me to do. How many of them do you know that spend time in God's Word, and they pray, and they can't find God's will? Now, if we lay aside our will before we ever start to pray and we surrender all to God's will, then God's will becomes more discernible. Now, I'm not going to deal much more with that aspect of it because if you have read the Word and you have prayed to God as you should and you've done all that God says to do to the very best of your ability and you're still confused, then come back and talk to me. And then we'll discuss it some more. But until you've done that, you'll always have trouble discerning God's will. You can't shortcut it. You've got to be in the Word, and you've got to pray about it. And then I have this word for somebody who's not a Christian. There's also a scripture for you. Now, it's a much more limiting one. You only really need to know one scripture out of the Bible. John 6, verse number 40. And this is the will of him that sent me that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That is God's will for you. You are to trust Christ. Now, if you haven't done that, then God's not going to deal with you on any other issue. You can't pray and ask for God's will to be done in your life if you've ignored Jesus Christ. If you haven't trusted him Jesus began the prayer with our Father. That's the relationship. The relationship must be there, or there's no part of the prayer that you can pray. You have to trust Christ, because that's God's will. It's the only will for you that matters right now. In fact, that's the only will for you right now. Jesus said, For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same as my brother and my sister and my mother. That's a relationship, isn't it? You're not in the family of God unless you've done God's will by receiving Jesus Christ as Savior. And then finally, 
How do you know God's will? Well, you have to develop the desire for it. You must desire to know God's will. Now, I've spoken about angels in heaven, and I've said, wow, they're models for the preceptive will of God. But did you know that the best model is not an angel? The best model was actually a man, and that man was Jesus. See, as much as he was God, he was also man. And you know what Jesus had? He had a true desire for God's will. Before he went to the cross, Jesus knelt in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed. And he said, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. You know what that is? I mean, that is the very same unreserved, unreserved surrender that we saw from the angels concerning doing God's will. But here, it doesn't come from an angel. It comes from a man. Jesus had a desire to do God's will comprehensively, all the way to the cross, taking all the shame and the sorrow that went with it. He did it as a man. He also wanted to do God's will immediately because when he prayed this prayer, it was on that very same night that they came and took him in the garden and they took him to judgment. The Bible says his hour had come and Jesus was ready to go. And so when he prayed, he was ready to do God's will immediately. That was his desire. Now, I want you to understand something, that with your salvation, you have built into you a desire to do God's will. Now, you may not realize it right now, but God has put in you, if you are a child of God, the desire to do his will. Now, you didn't have it before. When you were lost and you didn't know Christ, you didn't really care about God's will. But God has put the desire in you. But the problem is that you have clouded it over with a lot of different issues. You've got things that you want to do. You've got your own will. Self is still controlling you. But God did put that desire in you. It was put in you by regeneration. So there's that desire to love God, to serve him, and to follow his will. But the thing that you have to do is you have to cultivate it. You have to cultivate that through allowing the Holy Spirit to work in you. And you do this by bathing in prayer what you want from God. Asking God for this, you bathe it in prayer. And when you do, I promise that it's going to grow. It will grow because God has designed it that way. It can't do anything else. And so the question for you is, do you really desire this petition of prayer? Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. If that's your desire, then I would tell you, go out and do God's will. I mean, this is the will of precept. And what is that? It doesn't mean passively. You can't do commandments passively. It means actively engaged in the service of God. The longer that you sit, the longer you are out of God's will. You must be actively engaged in keeping God's commandments. And the Bible says that when God's will is done, his kingdom comes. His kingdom comes when his will is done. There can't be another outcome. And so I'd ask you, what are you doing? What are you doing to make the kingdom of God come? You know, God has given us those commands, and I see so many Christians that break the very simplest of God's commands, and they wonder, why, why, why? Why doesn't God answer my prayers? They stay away from church. They miss the services. They're not actively engaged in what God tells them to do. They're, they're out there doing their own thing, and they wonder, why doesn't God answer my prayers? Why am I having such a hard time? If you really desire that God's kingdom would come on this earth, then you had better get busy doing God's will. Pray for it. 
and pray that God will use you to do his will. I mean, not a million other wills that are out there. All of that has to be consolidated into one will, and that's the will of God. His will is the only will. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. And so many times we are perplexed by these issues. I hear so many Christians talking about, I can't find out God's will. I just don't know what to do. I don't know which way to turn. And yet you've outlined it so clearly for us that if we just stay in your word, if we study as we should, if we pray as we should, that your will will be opened up unto us. We don't have a great deal of difficulty finding out the will of God when we have received Christ as Savior. The ability to find it, the ability to do it has been put into our hearts. So I pray, Lord, for someone here today who's not a Christian. Your will for them is that they trust Christ. Trust Christ alone, not depending upon self, not anything that we do, but that Jesus Christ paid the full penalty for our sins and trusting in him alone. That's the will for the person who has not believed. And then, Lord, for those who are Christians, your will is for us to be actively engaged in your work, not to put things off, not to do what we need to do and want to do now, but, Lord, to see your will and act immediately upon it. And that's when we find blessing in our lives. Speak to your people today, Lord. Encourage us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand as we sing.